Hi, I'm Robert McGinnis. I'm the driver of the number nine Palto Network Suncos Racing for Mazda car. And welcome to the Book and the Bird Show. Another week before we get to the end of the F1 summer break, but this weekend there is actually a lot of racing going on. So I'll mention it first because it's the least important to us. NASCAR has a race this weekend. Um, IndyCar is over in Pocono this weekend, but Road to Indy is not. Oh. So they will be at Gateway Motorsports Park, uh, I believe it's next week, will be Road to Indy. Although, if you want to check out what happened at Road to Indy while we were at Mid-Ohio, you can check out the Mazda Road to Indy app. They've got an episode on the weekend. Oh. There. Very cool. Um, Also, this weekend is the World Endurance Championship's Six Hours of Silverstone race. Oh. Which we'll talk about in a bit. That's actually going on as we record. Okay, well, it is six hours long, so we're not going to record for six hours. No. We are not an endurance podcast. But before we get to all of that, let's talk Formula One, because there actually was some stuff going on. And, you know, actually, I I should turn around, maybe for next week, I will have you do this, is one of the things that tends to happen as we hit the middle of the season is we tend to get the um, mid-season middle-of-the-year performance or self-evaluation from the various drivers. Oh. So I should probably have you go and collect all of that stuff and and present that to us. Okay. (laughs) All right. We'll we'll look at that for next week. But this week we've got some other conversations happening, some other events that occurred. First one is, you know, if you're Kevin Magnuson, and you're in a position where you're not going to win races, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a tight battle for position right now. And you're actually having, um, compared to previous years, a decent season. How do you motivate yourself? How do you keep things going? How do you keep yourself excited and wanting to push and go faster and do more? Well, Kevin's solution is that he has created a Class B title championship. That's what he calls it, a Class B title championship. It is completely and totally 100% imaginary. <laughs> I was betting for sticker chart. No, no. That, well, that, that would be the IndyCar drivers with their, their Verizon Pole Award stickers. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're not welcome in IndyCar <laughs> for the rest of the year now, possibly. But anyway, um, yeah, what Kevin says is that He's kind of creating this big championship in his head. I know it doesn't exist, but in my head, it's something to motivate myself with. I've let go of those top three teams. I'm not worried about that. But we are in an even fight with the two or three other teams in the midfield. And that fight is something that I really want to win. Oh, so best of the rest is the title he's looking for. Essentially, but he he calls it this, it's a B-class title. 
He says, I haven't had any kind of winning emotions for all the time that I've been in F1. When I finished third but got second in Australia in my first race, I still didn't have those kind of winning emotions. It was just a third. Now I've been able to focus on this big championship that I have created in my mind, <laughs> and when I beat the other guys, I get the same emotions as winning. <laughs> you got to give him points for <laughs> not real points, totally imaginary, imaginary points. points. <laughs> <laughs> you have to give him that for creating a way to feel like he's winning when he's not. But I'm kind of starting to question his grasp of reality. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's let's apply the Kevin Magnuson motivational series to other parts of our lives. You know? So I totally realize that I don't run the company I work for, but I'll completely create an imaginary world where I run my own company. Okay. I mean, that would be the same concept. Yeah. Um, another option would be I drive a beater car. I totally imagine that I'm driving a Mercedes. Well... I mean, do you get behind the wheel of the car and go vroom, vroom like you do when you're a kid? I don't know. I'm just offering other options to apply the Kevin Magnuskin School of Motivational Theory. Well, there, there actually was at one time a Class B title in Formula 1. It was official. Okay. It was a real thing. Um, it was in 1987. It was called the Jim Clark Trophy. And it was specifically for drivers who did not have turbocharged engines, because at that time you had both. Jonathan Palmer won that title. Oh, Joanne's daddy. Right. Um, however, because I think Autosport is bored, mm -hmm. they actually turned to their partner, Forex, who is, I guess, they provide statistical information for Autosport. And they built out this whole scenario. Okay. For the 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 B class B battle, okay, Magnuson's imaginary class. Kevin's not winning. Uh oh, nobody tell Kevin that he he's won two races according to this battle, but he's not winning. He is trailing Nico Hulkenberg by twenty two points. Oh. What are the qualifications to be in the class? How did they define class B? What do they do? Just remove the top three? No. That, that would be my thought is that they're they're removing the top three from contention there. Okay. So that would be six cars out right off the bat. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's a... Uh, in in Kevin's imaginary title race, according to Autosport and Forex, not Kevin, um, Nico Hulkenberg, followed by Kevin Magnuson, Carlos Sainz, Fernando Alonso, Esteban Ocon, Sergio Perez, Pierre Gasly, Roman Grosjean, Charles Leclerc, with the top rounded out by Stoffel the Flying Waffle. <laughs> <clears throat> Who apparently in this series as well... It's still not doing well. It is, uh, it is still stoppable. He's totally stoppable. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's really sad. He has such a great name. And yet not a great driver. <laughs> I, 
I he probably is a very not, good driver. He does not have yeah. a great car, and his combination is not right. That and, and I, dis, despite the hype that there was that he could be the next great thing, I think I think there's still um, some more work that needs to be done. I think he's a decent enough driver. I think he belongs in Formula One. I think in a decent car he could be. Um, at least at Magnuson, at a Magnuson Hulkenberg level, mm-hmm. but he's handicapped by a car that that sucks. Yeah, still a great name though. So let's talk a little about Renault. So Renault has been on, and we've talked about this before. Since they bought the Enstone team from Lotus, they have been on a huge hiring frenzy, trying to build up the facility, build up the team, build up everything else. To give you an idea, so they they bought the team in 2015 going into the 2016 season. They have increased the staff from 470 to 700. Wow, that's a complete, that is the definition of a hiring surge right there. Yeah. Um, They've also gone, and that work is, and, and I'm assuming because this is construction work and it's not development work around the car, this work has continued throughout the summer break. <clears throat> but they, they're doubling the size of the composites facility at Endstone um, to help um, ease a uh, backlog and, and break up the, the, the backlog of, of composite parts manufacturing. It's one of the issues that's holding them back. Mm. But Cyril Abitbull has also admitted that, yeah, this mass hiring frenzy and this big onboarding of personnel has actually, yes, it's helped them and given them some additional resources, but as a result, they're not as efficient as they need to be. Oh, okay. You know, it's a bit of a struggle that you've got to onboard all these brand new personnel. Yeah, you're throwing people at the problems that you have, but you may not be as efficient as you need to be, and therefore you're not quite getting the biggest bang for your buck that you've invested in this. Okay. Um, He does say that that is now the next phase is looking, A, from a management level, and and do they have the leadership where they need, but also taking a look at where the the remaining inefficiencies are, where the remaining log jams are, and finding ways to free that up and allocate resources around that to make things better. Okay. <clears throat> so they, they've definitely seen some improvements as a result of all of this, one of which is the fact that, you know, they're, they're, they're leading Kevin Magnuson's imaginary championship. <laughs> 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 but in all seriousness, they... They're also, in terms of best of the rest, it is really, really tight. Um, They're in fourth place. They're 16 uh, points ahead of Haas. So in terms of best of the rest, they're there. Right. Um, Which, keep in mind, a year or two years ago, we were talking about best of the back markers. Right. So they've taken a nice jump up. But... This now gives Renault the classic F1 mid-season conundrum. Oh, when to flip to development of next year's car versus continuing developing and improving this year's car. And even not to whether when to flip, but 
in terms of just shifting resources over, because usually the plan is throughout the year, they gradually shift stuff over. But when a team is doing well, when a team is in a tight battle, like they are now with Haas with just 16 points, do you stop developing on the car? Do you slow down your pace of development? Or do you keep everything, especially knowing that next year there are tweaks to the aerodynamic rules that they have to figure out? That's a rough <clears throat> one because if they were to stop developing this car, they could potentially slide backwards and let Haas beat them right. in this season, which <clears throat> completely affects the money payout for what they could do next season. I mean, it's a catch-22. It's a catch-22 for any reasonably sized team. I think the only two teams that don't really have this problem are Mercedes and Ferrari. No, actually, I think that's the exact opposite. This is magnified for Mercedes and Ferrari because <clears throat> they're in a close battle for both drivers and constructors' championships. Both of those are massive, massive money. And again, the question is, in this type of a situation with it being as close as it is, when, if at all, can you take your foot off the gas on the 18 cars? Because if you decide that you're going to go and shift to 19, you may possibly give your rival an advantage who is not stepping back. So this is even worse for the teams at the front. Except okay. that both Mercedes and Ferrari have bigger budgets, that their 19 teams, the team that is working on their 19 car, is more fleshed out than a smaller team that is truly, and these are fake numbers, so barely. Yeah, I know. Um, if we said that the Renault team, total development team, 18 and 19 combined, was 100 people. At the start of the 18 season, there might be 25 people working on the 19 car and 75 people working on the 18 car. And that number will start to slowly dwindle on the 18 car and grow on the 19 car so that theoretically, if the pace just was matching, by mid-season you'd be 50-50. And then by towards the end of the season, you might be 25 people on the 18 car and 75 people on the 19 car until you decide that you're going to put 100 people on the 19 car. What Mercedes and Ferrari, because of their budgets, can do is that they can start with 200 people. They can put 100 people on the 19 car from the beginning of the 18 season. And yes, they will slowly start to move people over, but they've already got a very comp full complement of people working on 19 that Williams and Renault and Haas can't put the bodies against it. Yeah. <clears throat> so they, it allows them not to take the foot off the gas as easily in 18. Yeah, there, there, there's more bodies that can be dedicated to it, but it's still that question of when you start shifting more of your bodies over. It's a real easy answer if you're blowing the doors off of everybody and you've, you, you seal the either championship three, four, five races before the end of the season. That's a super easy answer. Yeah. Um, but right now, that that's a much harder... Or it's a really easy answer if you are a Williams that's absolutely tanking this season that you just say, I'm done. I think Williams has already turned around and said that they've turned their attention to 19. Force India is considering whether or not they're going to do it. Now, a yeah, lot I mean, of that, I think, is going to depend on what Lawrence wants to do. 
And I also think that it's probably about the dumbest move that you could do is tell your competition that you've decided to take all of your resources and put them onto 19. I mean, that does tell them that, hey, maybe if you held back one or two people, you could develop one or two things and we could win the season. So, I mean, it's – I think yeah. there's also some – I think it truly depends on where you sit in the championship yeah. and where you sit in relation to your rivals. And it's strategy. It's definitely strategy. <coughs> Because it's going to be a game of opportunity costs. How much opportunity do you have to make up ground or gain ground in 18 versus being able to be ahead of development in 19? Where would it put you if you were two months earlier than your competition yeah. um, next year? And can you bank on that? And so it's it's a game of, of opportunity costs, to be honest. The, the other thing that you've got to wonder is – as this development works, especially for teams like Renault and Mercedes and Ferrari and, and Red Bull that have their own wind tunnels, and even still there is a limited amount of time in the day, at what point do you prioritize your wind tunnel time mm -hmm. to your 19 car and the work that has to get done there as opposed to your 18 car and the improvements that are needed to keep you going? and the manufacturing and all of those various bits and pieces. So, yeah, we'll see how this shakes out. The other thing that Cyril Abitbull had, has talked about is in response to um, questions that have been happening around, say, Ferrari's hybrid or, or system and their exhaust system and Mercedes possibly burning engine oil and things of that nature. Cyril Bitbull has put forward his solution for making it easier for the FIA to detect and police such creative solutions to problems. Okay. What is his solution? More standardized parts. So become IndyCar. I don't know if he's thinking that far, that to that level. I don't think he's talking a full spec series. but and, and keep in mind, there are standardized parts within Formula One. The electronics control module is supplied by Williams, and that's standard across the line. And there's other components throughout the engine that we can't see that are standardized. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he's just saying that maybe there should be more of them. I disagree. I am in agreement with you. <laughs> As you should be. I, now, I, I can't take Cyril's side on this. Well, here's my issue. Is if we believe, if we believe the premise that Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsports, which I personally believe, mm -hmm. you have to believe that pushing the rule set to its very edge is a critical factor of Formula One. You do not get to maintain pinnacle of motorsports unless you are pushing the rule set. And by standardizing more of the car, you are not pushing the rule set. And I believe that the constructor side of this series is part of the most fascinating part of this series. The ability for the constructors of the cars, the manufacturers, to rethink, redesign, lay out on paper crazy ideas that could yield 
a quarter of a second faster, an eighth, a thousandth of a second faster. And you do a thousandth of a second across enough parts of that car and you're going to have somebody that dominates for four straight seasons like Mercedes. That is only possible if they have the opportunity across almost every part of that car. And in fact, I would almost argue that the rules as they are written are too limiting. But then we get into cost caps and other issues yeah, and other and problems. <clears throat> and I get that. But I want a Tyrrell to come back. I want crazy to come back on the on the track. Well, I to do. be clear, you, you don't really want Tyrrell to come back. You want the Tyrrell six-wheeled car to come back. I you want, want somebody those to think, kind of solutions. I want somebody to be not just thinking outside the box. I want them to crush the box, remake it into a trapezoid, and then step on it. With blown exhaust. Possibly. And double diffusers. I want somebody to figure out how to make blown exhaust negligible. I want somebody to take some other piece and mm-hmm. do something that makes a blown a d- exhaust, a double diffuser, a manually changed gear sus- uh, suspension on the track obsolete. That's what I want to be pushing our, our constructors to do. I want them to say, okay, blown exhaust no problem. I can beat that with this other part and go after that. And that's I'm going to add a second, another set of, car, of wheels or and the, do something incredible. Yeah, everybody now has blown exhaust, so now it's the next thing. Yeah, yeah. I want I want somebody to be thinking outside the box so far that that box is not a box anymore. And that's that's what I think is exciting about formula one is when they can pull that stuff off but what i understand is that when you listen to if you only listen to the echo chamber of what the fans talk about they're talking about that they want the kind of craziness that i'm talking about but they also want to have close wheel-to-wheel action on the the track they want to have tight series they don't want somebody to run away with the championship all of those things can't exist at the same time you have to be able to have massive, crazy development and have somebody be a winner and a loser out of that, and that's going to make separation on the track, and then you level the playing field again, and then you do it all over again. That is what Formula One should have. And I'll put away my aerodynamically created soapbox. Is it carbon fiber? It is so carbon fiber. <laughs> well, what It is Cyril- lightweight and aerodynamic. To- <laughs> To give Cyril a chance to explain himself. No, he's wrong. What he had to say and his perspective on this. He says, I don't want to create a debate here, which is too late. (laughs) Um, He says, I don't want to create a debate here. But I think we need to think how we can help the FIA regarding the enforceability of the regulations. I really believe that the complexity of the engine is such that I would not want to have myself to police it. So I think we need to figure that out. I really believe that some elements of standardization are not just useful but absolutely necessary if we want to retain some confidence between all the participants. He says, I think that, frankly, if we wanted to cheat on the current engine, we would know how to do it, and that's an issue. We are a very large corporation, and we would never do such a thing like that. We can't afford the reputation risk. I'm not saying that anyone is cheating. But I think it'd be good to get rid of all the speculation by doing some local and targeted standardization. And we put forward some proposals in relation to that. 
I disagree. One, I disagree with the very premise that because somebody is doing something well, that they're automatically cheating. Pushing the edge of the rules, walking in the gray area, I would agree with you 100% of the time. But that's what we have Charlie Whiting for. That's what we have technical regulations for. So where would you draw the line or would you draw the line? Like today, it's acceptable and, and agreed upon, and all the teams do it, that, again, Williams provides a standardized engine control unit box that everybody uses and nobody messes with, nobody tweaks. I think it's even sealed by the FIA, so nobody could do anything with it. <clears throat> and I think McLaren has a, a, a chip also that they supply that all the teams use, similar type thing, nobody messes with it, nobody tweaks with it, nobody, me you know, there, there's nothing that can be done about it. Would that be acceptable to you to continue with that type of thing? Would you be open to other components like, say, fuel injectors? I don't know. Throwing something out there. <clears throat> other components that the fans can't see. And really, it's hard for the fans to quantify how they would impact the racing. Would you be open to further standardization of those parts? Or do you say where we are is good or throw it all out the window? My honest <clears throat> feeling, mm -hmm. I'd throw it all out the window. Okay. I believe, personally, now, keep in mind, I don't run a race series, so I don't know what the full effect of my anarchy concept would be. But my theory is that we should set down a set of regulations that are around safety for the driver. Basic regulations that say we are safe. The, the capsule the driver sits in must not be able to be crushed. It, we, so standardization around safety features. And, and, and that standardization makes sense. On, uh, regulations on safety features, not standardization. Regulations on, stand, uh, no, on I, safety I mean, features. I'm okay with turning around and saying that Okay, the helmet is standardized and has to do this. It must be look certain, like this and this certain way. requirements. The halo has to be like this. The the tub has to be sh shaped in this fashion. Can't exceed this weight. Has to with. I mean, there's standardization there. And basically, if the answer is everybody buys the safety tub and the safety pieces from the same folks because it it's what me. I'm good with that. So it's not a performance thing. So my feeling is that there are regulations around safety mm -hmm. that ensure that drivers will survive crashes, that there is regulations around specific pieces of the cars that would allow the cars to be picked up off the track. So, for example, okay. there's got to be a hook on the car that the cranes can grab. Okay. Wherever that has to be, but there's there's something about where that needs to be. You know, we all have tow hooks on our cars and on the roads. They're in a specific spot for a reason. There needs to be a way to remove the car from the track. Things that facilitate race race and safety, safety operations. operations. Beyond that. Beyond that. I personally would regulate nothing else. I would go out with the free-for-all that says, give me the fastest, best piece of of technology you can put together on that track. Now, if we have to go in and say, okay, we need to do something around the engines to make sure that they're all on a level playing field, I could be okay with that. 
Like, I don't necessarily think that we should be racing V12s against hybrid turbo hybrids. Yeah. I think that that's probably a class thing. So there should be some degree of a balance of power. A balance of power, but <clears throat> not so artificially that says you have to all buy your engines from the same person or that I, I don't necessarily think the control unit needs to be all standardized unless there is something about that that would affect safety or race operations. There are going to have to be regulations in my in my concept, there would have to be regulations of there's going to have to be sensors that are on the cars that the FIA could regulate to monitor what operations are going on because they need to see certain things. But when it comes to whether or not they have this or that, or if it's a blown diffuser or a blown this or a whatever, you know, I don't think that that, I want the creative thought. I want somebody to say, if I tore out the rule book, what would you put together? What was the company that did it in WRC? Was it, it was. WRC or WEC? WEC. Well, Audi went with the turbo diesels. Um, but e one of them, one of the teams <clears throat> built a car that said, if you throw out the rule book, how would it do? And it like smoked everybody. And then they had to pull back all the stuff that broke the rules. It was in the preseason this year. Oh, I'm pretty sure that was Audi. No, what? it wasn't. It wasn't Audi because it was a, it was a, it was a smaller team. But we had this. We had a whole story about don't expect a whole lot from them, even though they were at the top of the the numbers charts for these testings. They could oh, maybe it was Rebel. It might have been Rebel, but it was the idea of they challenged their their engineers to if the rules didn't matter, mm -hmm. build me a car, and they built the car, and then they pulled off of it everything that didn't meet the rules. So then they could take each component that didn't meet the rules and tweak it. And okay, what do we? What happens if we put this within the rules? And what you know, what happens mm -hmm. here? So you, to see where they could get their gain, it was a novel approach. But think about how much faster that car was on the track during testing. How much better yeah. that car was. Oh, I, I actually know. I remember that story. One hundred percent. That was Toyota did that this year. Mm hmm. Toyota did that with the car this year. It was just, it was an interesting concept, and I would embrace that, knowing that the the effect on track could be that we would have a dominant person, and we're going to have somebody rock the world on that. But that's, to me, that's equally as exciting, except when it's Red Bull, because I have an issue. <laughs> so there's my aerodynamic carbon fiber soapbox that, since it is so light and I can pick it up with one finger, I can put it away easily. Ah. It's also origami folds up so I can put it in my pocket. I see. I can carry it anywhere. So, over to McLaren. They had a few things happen this week, didn't they? They had a couple of things happen this week. It was not a real the, quiet week. Not the <laughs> least of which was Fernando was speaking out. And he started on Monday. Oh. And on Monday, he declared that... All year, you know, all the development work that we've seen happen and all the things, the, the change that has gone on at McLaren, um, that the team has really only had one proper upgrade all year. Wow. <clears throat> so what he said was that he admits that the team is working very hard to figure out all of the various weaknesses, and they know their biggest one is the fact that they – don't have enough downforce and mm -hmm. it slows everything down 
Well, they recognize that by race three um, and race four. And in Barcelona, they brought out, we, we saw this, the, the new package with the new nose, uh, with kind of its aardvark snout type bit. <laughs> um, and it worked really well in Barcelona, worked really well in Monaco, and then everything went downhill again. Yep. So as a result, the team has then been using the Friday practice sessions as test sessions to try and sort stuff out. But everything that they have been rolling out has been these small incremental changes to try and fix the downforce issue. <clears throat> Nothing of anywhere close to what they did with Barcelona. Okay. So, yeah, he's once again down on McLaren. So that was the 13th. Fernando also put out this mysterious tweet on the 13th saying that something was coming on the 14th. Stay tuned. Pretty much. But he wouldn't say what it was. I know, I know. Well, on the 14th he came out. And, and I got to say, this story has not been covered particularly well. Which is shocking to me. What Fernando said... And what a lot of the, including the BBC, what they have reported has been wrong. Oh. So what Fernando said, what he announced, is that come the end of the 2018 season, he was going, he is stepping away from Formula One to look at other series and other areas. What he did not say Despite the reporting, he did not say he was retiring from Formula One. That's important. Oh. Okay. So was this like one of those weird Jensen Button type early announcements? Because that was Jensen's first announcement was, I'm taking a year off to reprioritize and to think about what my options are. Um, but I'm not leaving Formula One. Kind of. And then he retired. Well, the, the big difference, though, is that when Jensen stepped away, he stepped away from motorsports entirely. Mm -hmm. You know, other than a couple of PR um, appearances, he didn't race in any series. He didn't have a seat in any series. Um, he may have done a couple of drives, but he wasn't actively racing. We know for a fact that, at the very least, Fernando is going to race – into June of 19 because he's committed to the full WEC super season. Correct. So he's at least doing that. He is not stepping away from motorsport the way Jensen did. Okay. So, and, and we'll loop back to Jensen because we've got some conversation, some, some comments from Jensen and what the, this means for Fernando's Formula One career. But one of the things that he said, that, that Fernando said, is the reason why he's doing this is because the races are too predictable they're too boring. They know everybody knows what's going to happen. Now, I'm not completely sure I agree with that, but he says that he doesn't like the racing in Formula One now, and, he, and that's why he's looking to do other things. Now he says this, and let's take a look at what his WEC WEC season is shaping up to be, looking like, and expected to be. What is it that? His team, Toyota, is going to run away with the championship because they have no competition. Which is that not the definition of 
full-on predictability right there. Oh, but see, you don't understand what it means in Fernando logic. He's not winning. He's not winning. Yeah. It is totally fine to be a fully predictable, highly successful season if he's on the podium and winning. And if he's winning the championship, if his team is dominating. Yeah. Predictable is important and fabulous. When predictable means that he's going to come out on the short end of the stick, not so fabulous. Yeah. And to that point, that was Jensen's comment, was if it looks like McLaren is is turning it around, if it looks like he could get back into McLaren after a year or two and be challenging for wins and challenging for championships – he says, Fernando will come back. Mm-hmm. We're not done with Fernando yet. Yeah. Now, that means that there's going to be a seat open at McLaren. Well, let's let's stay with Fernando for a bit before we, we get to— I was so done with him. No, no we, we've got a lot more because there's other wheels going. Because okay. obviously th- this begs the question of what next? We know he's committed to WEC— through the first half of 19. And it's a pretty brutal schedule. It's, well, the WEC part isn't necessarily a brutal schedule. WEC mixed with Formula One is a very brutal schedule. Mm-hmm. Does he stay with that? Does he decide that he's going to go for not just Triple Crown, but also the IndyCar Championship? And how does that all shake out? So a rumor popped up that um, McLaren was moving forward with an IndyCar team for 2019 Mm -hmm. and was specifically targeting a driver to drive alongside Fernando. Oh. Interesting. Now, that kind of fell apart with the announcement that came on looks like Tuesday. Oh, no, it came Monday. It was just before Fernando had announced his retirement. Not retirement. His not retirement. His his leaving Formula One. And that was the announcement that four-time IndyCar champion Scott Dixon had agreed to a new multi-year deal to remain with Chip Ganassi Racing. That Scott was the leading contender to drive alongside Fernando in this new team. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know why anybody would want to, any established driver like that would want to drive next to Fernando. I think from the perspective of they could both push each other. That kind of a thing. That That's my thought. Okay. Um, so we also heard that Fernando's already been tipped and and been named to test a 2018 IndyCar or uh, uh, an IndyCar with the 2018 Aero Kit in September. Okay. We don't know the exact time. The test is expected to take place at a road circuit in September. So there's IndyCar racing taking place on the next three weekends, including this one, 
which would mean the test is likely to be scheduled between uh, the race in Portland on September 2nd and the final round at Sonoma on September 16th. Knowing that this is supposed to be a road test, Portland's an oval, Sonoma's a road course. So Probably my Sonoma. guess is this is going to be in Sonoma. Yeah. Um, the talk right now is that McLaren is working on a potential team-up or link-up with either Andretti or with, um, oh, who was it? Schmidt-Peterson. Okay. The, one of the questions is, do they stay with a Honda engine for this? Do they shift to a Chevy engine for this? Mm. Well, the rumbling that was coming from racefans.net is that it's McLaren, Andretti, and a partnership with Harding. Harding would allow the team to partner with Chevy as opposed to Honda. Oh. New potential teammates being tagged for Fernando would be either Gabby Chavez or Connor Daly. Oh, both of those need seats. Well, Gabby Chavez has been running for uh, Harding as a single with a single car entry. Gabby's driven it for a stretch, and the last two races, Connor Daly drove the car, including Mid Ohio. So maybe that. Chavez drove in Mid Ohio. Uh, Connor Daly was driving in Mid Ohio. We were talking about the fact that Connor was driving in Mid Ohio. Hmm. I just I, I must be wrong. Okay. Happens. Rarely. Now, the thing is, Honda's not... Well, Honda has won eight wins in the series. Chevy's had five. However, Chevy won the Indy 500. Mm -hmm. Chevy was more competitive in the Indy 500 than Honda was this year. So, yeah. And keep in mind, that's this year. Chevy has been dominant in prior years. Yeah. So, it's, it's not like... Just because oh, Honda's winning this year means that it's the best engine ever. But, you know, they don't have as quite the history of blowing up as they did in Formula One. Now, the head of IndyCar's parent company, so not IndyCar itself, but Mark Miles, who is the CEO of Holman and Company, which is the parent organization for IndyCar, has confirmed that McLaren is in the process of an application, uh, completing an application for the team. He says, and, and this was on Wednesday when Fernando announced that he was leaving Formula One, today's announcement certainly has fueled excitement among IndyCar fans who hope that Alonso will compete throughout the championship in 2019. McLaren is working to pull all necessary arrangements in place, and we are supporting their efforts. I don't expect this to be resolved until closer to the end of the year. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Ray Hall Lanigan would be the other team that, that is potentially going to be a partner with McLaren, not Schmidt-Peterson. I was wrong there. Wow. Ray Hall Lanigan, Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan racing. So maybe he could be driving alongside Bobby Ray Hall? Graham. Graham Ray Hall. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. Bobby's dad. Graham. Graham. You know, he's an, he is an Ohio boy, and that has an uh, Ohio connection. Yeah, the Ohio connection, yeah, I should have done that. Now, Carlin, who entered the season this year, or entered the series this year, 
moving up from, uh, and I think they still have the Formula 2 team, but they also had a lights team, which they don't anymore. Or maybe they do and they split. I don't know. It's confusing at this point. But Carlin did launch a team with Max. Right. Carlin says that, yeah, um, they're kind of pushing it in terms of the timing to get a car out there. Okay. I don't know. I would assume that given that these are pretty standardized, you just pretty much go to the liar and your engine manufacturer and go, I'll take two. <laughs> and here's a dump truck full of money. I don't think it's necessarily the car and the engine that it is. It takes time to figure out the paint scheme. Well, there's that part. <laughs> But it's putting together the the team. You have to have a, a pit crew that works together and yeah. an engineering crew. And keep in mind, they do crazy things like refueling in Indy cars. So you got to have somebody that knows how to work the fuel pump. I mean, these are important things. Remember when Haas came into Formula One, one of the comments that got made was normally when we see new teams come in, you know, they're using borrowed or sold off other equipment. And Haas had like their air guns for the wheel guns were all in Haas uh, embroidered bags. You know, they had, they, they came from a racing background. They had the swag that comes with that. And I think that's part of what Carlin is trying to say is there's a polish level that has to happen. And that does not happen overnight. You're not yeah. going to go to Delara and to your engine guy and say, I'll take two of those and two of those and then go over to Vistaprint and get all your signage done. You know, it's not going to happen. And then the question of if McLaren comes over, who are they going to go to with the dump truck full of money to get an engine? Well, Honda Performance Division, or excuse me, Honda Performance Developments, not to be confused with the Honda that builds the Formula One engines because HPD is located in California, not Japan. Mm-hmm. Different groups, that's probably why their engines don't blow up while the others does. And Art St. Cyr, who is the president of HPD, said, Fernando Alonso is one of the premier racing drivers of this generation, and we very much enjoyed working with him at the 2017 Indianapolis 500. You know, because he didn't belittle their engines until after it blew up at the end of the race, not before. Right. Yeah. He, um, Art went on to say, he has shown that he can be very competitive right off the bat. And it would be great for IndyCar if he were to decide to drive here full-time after his F1 career. Having Alonso as a driver would be an obvious benefit for any team or manufacturer. However, he then went on to say, and this is important, our engine lease agreements are made between HPD and specific teams. Several of our current IndyCar series teams already have agreements in place with HPD for 2019, and we have been operating near maximum capacity all year long to properly provide powerful, reliable engines for these teams. So they may not have the capacity to take on another team. Yeah. Which makes you wonder, does Chevy have that capacity? Somebody will fill the void. Yeah. So. Now to get back to to your question. There's of, a sucking vacuum sound in a seat at McLaren. And that sucking vacuum sound lasted about 48 hours. 48 whole hours? 48 hours. When McLaren confirmed that they have signed Carlos Sainz to replace... Junior. Carlos Sainz Jr., yes. <laughs> 
to replace Fernando from 2019. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff here. First of all, on a personal level, Carlos is very free to admit that one of his biggest motor racing idols is and has been for a very long time, Fernando. Well, they're they're both Span- Spanish. They're both Spanish. They've been very good friends. They they do a lot of stuff together. So for Carlos to follow in Fernando's feet, for Carlos that's like massive. Mm-hmm. So where were you going to go? Because I've got something else, but I want to hold it for a second. Oh, I was going to comment on the forty-eight hours that it took McLaren to declare this, okay. which was obviously to allow the ink to dry on the con- on the contract. I mean, apparently. But the other piece of this is Carlos has been in such a limbo position. He's on loan. He's, you know, he doesn't, he has a seat, doesn't have a seat. You know, what happens with Ricardo's seat? All of this. He's on loan, but also understand that what we were told about the status of Carlos's contract with Red Bull is that he was in a situation, according to what we had heard, that Red Bull had until the end of the month to make a determination as to what they wanted to do if that seat became open in Red Bull. And if they did not exercise it by the end of this month or state attentions by the end of this month, Carlos was free to go elsewhere. Which makes you wonder, did they tell Carlos what their intentions were? Right. Um, they just didn't make that public. Right. Or was this a matter of Carlos went to them and said, hey, McLaren's offering me a dump truck of money, um, and you guys aren't telling me what you want to do, so... And if you put me in a Toro Rosso again, I'm, I, I don't want to be here. Right. So that's, that's, a big, that's a big question as to, like, what happened in those 48 hours? Yeah. So something, and, and very interesting coincidence around this. And, and it's really all it is, is just an interesting coincidence. In order to, to fully understand this, we have to go back several years. So going back several years, the, t- the predecessor to what is today's Toro Rosso was Minardi. Right. Minardi sold off the assets because they were getting out of the sport, and the team was bought by Red Bull and became Toro Rosso. So follow this path with me. Fernando Alonso's career, first teams where he started and all of that stuff. He started off with Minardi. Mm-hmm. Then he went to, to Renault. Mm-hmm. Then he went to McLaren. Carlos Sainz Jr. Started with Toro Rosso. Which was formerly Minardi. Went to Renault. Now then Ma- he's at McLaren. McLaren. So the next stop is to go to Ferrari, right? Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting progression there, though. <laughs> I saw that pop up on Twitter, and I was like, that's actually kind of fascinating. It is very fascinating. And then you have on top of that the fact that Fernando is Carlos's idol and the, the personal history between the two of them. It's like, wow. <laughs> now, the difference, though, is that when Fernando was at Renault, he won two world championships. Correct. And Renault is nowhere in that position to do that with Carlos. Right. So he's on a little bit different track, but it is the similar team concepts and things like that. So that's very cool. So then this begs all of the other questions and machinations that are going on and and, uh, oddness of the silly season right now. 
So let's start off with if Carlos is moving to McLaren. What happens to And he's in this reported period of that he was locked into Red Bull unless Red Bull made a decision. We haven't heard anything publicly. So the thought is, okay, if you look at the driver's performances and what's happening and what Red Bull likes to do, they sure as hell aren't going to bring Hartley up. Mm -mm. Not even close. Hartley's going to be hard-pressed to have a seat next year. I don't know about that just yet. Hang hang on to that. If Daniel hadn't moved, I would say, yeah, Hartley's hard-pressed to to have a seat. But at the end of the – well, at the start of the year, they still need two drivers over at Toro Rosso, Mm -hmm. no matter what. That was why Hartley got brought in because they still needed two drivers over at Toro Rosso no matter what, and they didn't have anybody else available. So based on what we have seen, some flashes of greatness plus experience with the Honda engine, Pierre Gasly gets moved up to Red Bull alongside Max Verstappen, at which point I think Max is just going to crush Pierre. Oh, yeah. Um, I I don't think Pierre is going to be able to hold his own for very long and i don't think he's going to be in that seat for very long personally so you open up a seat over at toro rosso that potentially may have been offered to carlos and carlos said um not just no but hells to the no yeah um so you've got that and then you've got um and i just lost his name brennan hartley thank you hartley i don't think is going to go anywhere they need somebody to fill that seat so you've got potentially Dan Tictum, mm-hmm. although it's not quite clear if he can qualify for a super license, and he's been described as scary but good. That's so, always a great moniker. Yeah. So he may not necessarily be in a position to move into that seat. The Red Bull program has been out fairly thin lately. So where do they get another driver in there? There are rumors flying. We don't know if this is true. We had heard that that Kimmy was out the door and done, and this was going to be his last season, and he was not getting extended a contract. However, since the death of Sergio Marchionne, rumors have started flying that a two-year deal, not even a one-year deal, which is what he's been on, a two-year deal has been prepped at Ferrari to be handed to Kimi Raikkonen. Because what we also know is that Sebastian Vettel really doesn't want Charles Leclerc in the the other other seat. seat. So what happens to Leclerc? That's an excellent question. Because he's too good to stay at Sauber. Well, that's the thing. Is Leclerc willing to continue to cool his jets over at Sauber and flatter Sauber? Or could he then be on the market to go elsewhere? And if you're Red Bull looking for something hot that that is A, young, probably more than willing to jump into a Toro Rosso seat and get yourself into into the Red Bull development program and you don't have somebody in a junior series who could take that seat got Charles Leclerc it's 
interesting theory, isn't it? It's an interesting theory. You know, I mean, you've got other machinations that are going on mm-hmm. because we have Daddy Stroll that has bought uh, Force India and what's going to happen with those drivers. I mean, there's there's other little bits and pieces that are going on there, too, because Daddy's buying a seat for Lance somewhere. And then that's going to put a seat open at Williams. But well, who wants to go to Williams? He, here's here's something around the whole Lawrence Stroll thing is, yes, he has made it clear. And he said he tried to get Williams to do this. And Williams flat out told him no. And we reported that, that, that Lawrence had tried to make Williams into a B team. He wants to make somebody Mercedes B team. Mm-hmm. So he approaches Mercedes and says, okay, I've got this team. They've been fairly strong. Money has been an issue. Funding isn't a problem, but we want to make them your B team, your development team, a la uh, a, a, a Toro Rosso or to a lesser extent a Salva or a Haas. What can we do to make this happen? And if Mercedes, if Toto Wolf turns around and goes, okay, sure, we wouldn't mind doing that. We can use the block. You guys are going to support us in all of these various ways. And if you do that, at least one seat needs to maintain, be maintained for the driver of our choice. That could screw up Lawrence's plans. Right. Well, because Lance might have to then drive against Ocon. Ocon or possibly... Um, I think it was it Oliver Turby is their junior driver in in the the um, F two series. Mm. Maybe Toto turns around and says this is a way for us to go and free up a location for them. I don't know. I don't know. We got to stay tuned with silly season because it's stacking up to be one, and then there's people like Ferrari that are possibly offering Raikkonen a two-year deal that just ceases to make any sense to me. Yeah. So, back over to IndyCar. Briefly, IndyCar. Like I mentioned, we have two uh, two races left, um, and somebody banned Formula Two driver in particular. Santino, not just banned, <laughs> fired and banned. Formula Two driver Santino Ferrucci, it has been announced, is returning to IndyCar for the final two races of 2018. He will be joining um, Sebastian Bourdais and Pietro Fittipaldi at Delcoin Racing, who is going to expand their lineup to a third car to accommodate Santino. Oh my. Yeah figure that one out now he had raced uh santino ferrucci had raced earlier in the year uh at the chevy duel in detroit replacing um oh replacing pietro fittipaldi because fittipaldi had injured in uh le mans and couldn't race so brought him in and uh what the team said after and specifically what del coin had to say about santino's performance was that we're, we were very impressed with Santino at, Destro- at Detroit this year, and not just by his performance behind the wheel, but also by his professionalism and maturity outside of the race car. Now, I, I point that out for a reason. Never mind getting banned for your, talking on your cell phone and driving into your teammate for no good reason and violating the rules in the paddock. 
His performance in Detroit. Let's rehash what happened. And admittedly, um, well, we'll get to Spencer Piggott's comments in a minute. So the opening race, he was running in 13th until he was hit by Charlie Kimball. He then chapped tapped the rear of Spencer Piggott's car on the opening lap of the second race through the narrow third corner and hit Piggott again at turn five, pushing him into the outside wall. Following a pit stop, Ferrucci spun of his own accord and broke his front wing before Piggott ran over the debris and picked up a puncture that forced him to retire. Piggott must not have been thrilled with him. Well, without even that, how can Dale Coyne be impressed by that performance? He was blindfolded and tied up in the back of a truck? I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. But Piggott, who turned around and said, it wasn't just a spin. I got hit from behind by Ferrucci. First we banged wheels, then he just kind of punted me in turn five. It's very disappointing to end the race this way. It's unfortunate when drivers come into the series and do silly things like that because they don't respect that all of us are out here racing every weekend for the championship. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 I don't get what was impressive about that performance. Obviously, the word impressive means different things to Dale Coyne than it does to us. Inconceivable. I don't think that word means <laughs> what you think it means. <laughs> Is that our list of stories? You said we didn't have very much. We're still on a lull. We have a little bit from WEC, actually. Okay. So... They announced their calendar for the 2019-2020 season. Now, remember, WEC is the World Endurance Championship. And the World Endurance Championship has cut several races, actually two races, from six hours to four hours. Well, attention spans are getting shorter these days. Four hours is an endurance race these days. Yeah. So, yeah. Silverstone's going to be going from six hours to four hours, and Shanghai is going from six hours to four hours. But they are bringing back Bahrain and Sao Paulo. Oh, so total hours behind the wheel will be the same. (laughs) Those are six-hour races. Oh, okay. So they'll have more hours behind the wheel next season. It's an endurance season, not an endurance race. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying here. I'm, I'm trying my best. Yeah. So this weekend is the six hours of Silverstone, possibly the last one before they go down to four. It's less of an endurance at that point. Um, yes, the Toyotas, or a Toyota was on the pole. It was not Fernando's car. Oh, really? Now, that doesn't mean that can't win and, and, or anything like that, but Mike Conway, uh, Jose Maria Lopez, and Kamui Kobayashi, they took pole. For the Go Kamui. The um, they're still expected to do really well. Jensen Button, who also was driving this weekend, says that he expects that Toyota will win, win the race by four laps. Okay, but aren't they like without actual competition? Um, well, in their class, there yeah. th- there were things that were done to slow down the car and even out the balance of power. They still expect to get crushed. Um, not the least of which is um, Rebellion, who had been doing very well. Bruno Senna gotten a major crash. Oh. He's out of the race. The team just says that they're in survival mode trying to keep things going right now. Poor Rebel. So, 
All right. Or rebellion, rather. Rebellion. Yes. All right. On that note. Now we've hit everything. We can call it a show. All right. Uh, how many weeks till spa? Next week. Next week? Next week. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> the filler shows will end. We will be back at spa next week. And on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay.